You're listening to Grace Saves All, the podcast which exists at the spiritual intersection of Christianity and universal salvation. In this podcast, we will be exploring an ancient and modern approach to Christianity, which affirms both that grace saves alone and that grace goes to all. And now, here is David Artman, author of Grace Saves All, The Necessity of Christian Universalism. John Caputo is the Thomas J. Watson Professor of Religion Emeritus at Syracuse University and the David R. Cook Professor of Philosophy Emeritus at Villanova University. Welcome, John Caputo, to the Grace Saves All podcast. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Well, John, I've had your work recommended to me as an interesting and valuable perspective, which I, as a Christian universalist, might want to engage with. I've worked through your book, In Search of Radical Theology, and what I'd like to do in this interview is sketch out how a radical theology perspective and a Christian universalist perspective might interact with each other, where they might find some agreement and where they might find some tension. And what I'd like to begin with is a quote from In Search of Radical Theology, where you write, Radical theology belongs to what Derrida calls the new humanities found in the unconditional university, the university to come, which reserves the right to ask any question, however dissident, however scandalous its questions may be to confessional authorities and traditions, to any authority, religious or secular. Radical theology claims access to anything and everything that is going on in religion, even if the confessional authorities build walls around certain things and declare them mysteries unattainable by reason. Radical theology is, on its face at least, cosmopolitan and universal, its modern face, free and unfettered, its postmodern face, remembering we should not accept things at face value. The natural place, as the ancients might have said, of confessional theology is the houses of worship and of learning conducted by the confessional community its pastors at their preaching, its professors at their teaching in colleges and universities, seminaries, and divinity schools, all highly respectable places where the radical and radical theology renders it suspect or unwelcome. Radical theology does not conform to confessional authority, does not respect the distinction between orthodoxy and heresy. That suggests that the natural place of radical theology, by contrast, would be secular or non-confessional institutions like the religion or religion stu- religious studies departments of a secular university where confessionalism is the cardinal sin. So, with this quote as a starting point, let's begin our conversation. And the first thing I'd like to observe is that as a Christian universalist who believes that God ultimately saves all, I find a lot of resonance with this. In my journey to a Christian universalist perspective, I've had to challenge the Western Christian tradition with its doctrine of a coming eternal separation of the saved and the damned as fundamentally inconsistent with the loving God, and that has made me suspect in most modern church settings and left me oftentimes feeling most welcome in non-confessional institutions or religious studies departments. So both you and I might be equally suspect in many Christian houses of worship and Christian higher education settings. And so with that as a starting point, I'd like to ask you some of your thoughts about this. Okay. Do you, uh, would, uh, uh, what I might say at, at this point is um, the sort of middle point between confessional theology in its classical sense and in, in its traditional senses uh, and what I'm calling radical theology, I would say that the, the rite of passage or the middle 
point or the bridge is Paul Tillich. And uh, Tillich's notion of God not as a supreme being, but as a ground of being. And of faith not as a set of confessional beliefs, but a a fundamental orientation of the the heart. And Mm -hmm. um, consequently, you would make a distinction between faith and beliefs. Beliefs are what preoccupy the confessional traditions, and then they get into their debates about correct belief and incorrect belief, orthodoxy and heresy, and all of which I think um, are um, distractions and diversions uh, and confusions about what uh, Tilly calls matters of ultimate concern. So one way to place this, what I'm doing, is is through Tillich. Now, the difference between Tillich and what I'm calling radical theology is um, that Tillich is really proposing an ontological, uh, making an ontological claim about the ground being, that the world, his position, I think, is... um, well described by this word pan-entheism, God in all, all in God, which is a metaphysical position. Now, uh, as a um, somewhat in the postmodern or post-structuralist uh, tradition, I don't uh, or line of thinking, I don't, I don't have a, I don't adopt metaphysical positions like that. I mean, I'm not. It's, it's not a, a version of uh, pan-entheism. But panentheism would be the closest thing to in in recognizable theologies to what I'm calling radical theology. So, and then one of the central pillars of Tillich's thought that I'm using is Tillich's critique of supernaturalism, namely that the that the world as it stands stands in need of some kind of supernatural intervention, some kind of supernatural support. Uh, which which I take to be uh, a, mis- a mystification. Um, so in the particular quote that you uh, cited there, if I recall it, uh, that I was speaking to a group of people about the place of uh, theological thinking in the university, and I was saying it's it's an it's a kind of a misfit because. The radical part scares away traditional theologians, and the theological part scares away um, academics, secular academics. So so to find it at home, probably the best place would be a secular religion department that studies religion from a non-confessional point of view. which is true, but what I actually think is that it belongs anywhere in the humanities because it's asking us to think radically about the human condition, the human situation, about ultimate matters, about which there are fundamental limits, right? I mean, our ability to say what is ultimately going on in this world is, and in our lives is limited. And in that perspective, I take 
philosophy to be profoundly important because it raises questions of ultimate concern. And I also take theology to be profoundly important because it raises questions of ultimate concern. Um, but the philosophers think they're... Um, the, the, the restriction that the philosophers put on themselves is to have a, a too strong or too severe an idea of reason. And the theologian, the restrictions the theologians put on themselves is that they have too strong uh, or severe theory of faith, um, which I think they confuse with belief. Um, so if we could get the philosophers to get over their rationalism, and the theologians to get over their super supernaturalism, then we could have a, a conversation that would fit in any number of different places in um, the study of the humanities, in literature, in philosophy, in religion, um, particularly philosophy, religion, and literature. Well, my so, wife teaches. My my wife teaches in a religious studies department at a Missouri State in Springfield, Missouri, and. When If I want to talk about Christian universalism, the idea that God will ultimately save all, and in that setting, nobody you know gets upset about that. That's just an, just another perspective. And in that department, the people are just there to discuss a number of different um, a number of different perspectives. But what happens is if I raise that um, proposal in most Christian settings, um, there is, uh, people are quite distressed by it, um, by the idea that they wouldn't be so concerned that a philosopher might raise questions about how a, a God of love could be behind a hell of eternal separation. But when they hear a, a minister raise those same questions and then propose a Christian universalism, using universalism as a solution to this, uh, that's when they get um, pretty concerned. So that's why I was just saying that I think both you and I might uh, cause some uh, consternation in many sort of standard traditional Christian settings. Absolutely. <laughs> no doubt about it. <laughs> um, yeah. Or, or uh, you, you can also make, make your way in a, a progressive or liberal um, school of theology. Uh, and there, there are plenty, plenty of them around too. Well, what um, I've discovered about but, my, just to say that, that when it comes to progressive or liberal theology, my Christian universalism is suspect there because it's too, it's, it's not pluralistic. It's um, too centered on Christ as the final savior of all. And um, so also in but the the more progressive Christian settings that I've been around, any talk about some kind of life after death or a salvation from sin just seems kind of like some form of evangelicalism. So my Christian universalism has kind of run into trouble in progressive on the progressive end of Christianity and on the conservative end of Christianity. Yeah, I mean, when you talk about Christ as the universal savior of all, I mean I would I would not I think Christ is a symbol and a uh, uh, what, what I would call a, theo, a theopoetic reality. Uh, I, I don't think that um, that would be Christocentric in a way that I would criticize it, which is not universal, not properly universal, because it's it's accepting 
a particular historical, cultural, identifiably limited uh, tradition and trying to universalize it. And that, I think, is Christocentric in the uh, in the sense that I reject, because there are other traditions, and if you were switched at birth with someone born in the heart of Islam, you would be very, very likely a devoutly uh, Muslim. And right. the person you got switched with would be devoutly Christian. So matters of ultimate concern can't be uh, constricted by contingencies of birth. What people call a gift of faith is largely an accident of birth. And if you were born in another time or another place, see, that's what I mean by belief. So I think Christ as the Savior of all is a belief. It's, it's not the deep structure of faith in radical theology. The deep structure in, of faith in radical theology is what is in the heart of anyone, no matter what historical tradition they inherit. Because you have no control over the historical tradition you inherit or the language you speak or the world you uh, are born into. Right. But you do have control. You do have something to say about what kind of a human being you, you make yourself out. Right. Make, so that's what, yeah, so that's what becomes inherently offensive about my Christian universalism is I'm saying that is that um, in the ages to come, when the truth is finally revealed and all all will gratefully and happily see that, oh, it it was in fact um, God in Christ that provided a reconciliation for all humanity. And, it, and at that point, nobody will be offended. Um, nobody will be offended by that. Whereas then that, of course, that runs into tension with your position. Yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, philosophically, that's non-falsifiable. And if it's not falsifiable, it means it, it holds no... Um, epistemological validity. When you, when you say a thing like that, eventually when everybody's dead, they'll discover I'm right. <laughs> well, when, eventually when everybody's dead, they'll discover the world is made of green cheese. There's, propositions like that are non-falsifiable, and consequently they have no veridical truth, truth value. Yeah. What claims that have truth value can be, we can, we can say, well, you know, that doesn't sound right. Um, but you can't say so. You can't say that about something like that because it's you've put the thing beyond the limits of anybody debating about it. Well, and, in the in uh, in your position, as I understand it, what what the sort of the there is no there is no God as a super being there. There is an insistence there, and that is that is given as a kind of an ultimate truth claim, which I could say is you know kind of the same kind of thing that we're. That we're both making some kind of claim, which uh, can't ultimately be verified until we until we you know get there, if we get there. Right. Yeah. But some things are more plausible than others. Uh, I mean, it's, it's certainly true. I mean, I, I'm interested in the theory of interpretation called her hermeneutics. Yeah. And in, in hermeneutics, you say there there are no uninterpreted facts of the matter. There, whatever. Our human understanding is intrinsically depend depends upon having an, an interpretive angle, a point of view, a, a way of understanding it. So uh, we understand out of a determinate hermeneutic situation 
and you could you could never escape it. So so and one way to put that is you know it's sort of a, 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 a saucy way to put it is you could say there are no facts there are only interpretations now that doesn't mean that but but that doesn't mean that some interpretations aren't better than others mm-hmm. we understand things through interpretations but some interpretations are plausible and suggestive and have a future and other interpretations are narrow and implausible or invidious and and hateful I mean, people can have conspiracy theories or uh, interpretations and everybody has an interpretation but some 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 interpretations can plainly be rejected mm-hmm. now, now what i think is uh, i i think that, uh, that um i mean i, I actually think that that the this that the switch did birth uh point is important in the study of, of, of religion and when we're thinking about religion. Um, you, you can't be held responsible for things that you're not responsible for. You can't, you can't, you can't, you don't get, as you say, choose your parents carefully. Right. Um, so that, that clearly, our, our entire meaning, the, the entire, the, the deepest meaning of our life can't be contingent upon a, a, an accident of birth. I mean, for for thousands of years, people before before Jesus was born, mm-hmm. and Jesus, I think, would have a hard time recognizing Christi- Christianity. Um, but thousands of years before Jesus was born, you know, people never never heard of Jesus, and said so the, the very meaning of human existence can't be Jesus because he wasn't even born. There are multiple traditions outside Christianity that have the same uh, legitimacy and the same depth and the same enduring power to to inspire lives. That multiplicity of traditions, of religious traditions, testifies to something which, I, I don't use the word universal a lot because universal sounds like... Um, has a, has a little bit of a univocal meaning to me, but it, but it's a, it's an okay word if you understand that what is universal could take many different forms. Um, so the 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 particularity of the tradition Christian Christian tradition is at odds with the universality of matters of ultimate concern. Now, what what I like about what you're calling universalism is that it. It makes uh, it's it's critical of an idea which I think is barbaric, which is that what someone did in a finite amount of time, once in in you know in, in space and time, and a finite life in space and time could be punished eternally with the way the theologians who uh, talk about final ends uh, describe it. Is in you know is is this is an unbearable pain? So an eternity of unbearable pain is a positively barbaric idea, and it's amazing to me that anyone would actually put their credence in it. And, and I think that, I think of, that is a I think that's a point of real convergence that I've that that I've found about your work is that I I right. think that we are fundamentally objecting to that 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 idea is nonsensical. Right. Absolutely. 
Now, the next question for me would be this. Um, that what that does is insert life within uh, what I call, and here I'm following this philosopher Jacques Derrida, an economy, a uh, you do this, you get that, and the the way that traditionally works is you if you misbehave, you get eternal punishment and if you behave yourself you'll be eternally rewarded now i reject that whole schema of thinking about life in those terms but one of my favorite ways to explain this is matthew 25 so in matthew 25 you have what i think is a, a, a very powerful and very beautiful account of what i think the figure of jesus in the new testament stands for, which is um, the servants who uh, feed the hungry because the hungry are hungry, they clothe the naked because the naked are naked, and they uh, visit the imprisoned because the prisoners are imprisoned, period, period. There's that form of life, that kind of life of compassion and mercy, uh, and love is what I think is going on in the figure in the New Testament of the kingdom of God. I think that is the kingdom of God, that kind of life, that form of life. Mm -hmm. But that beautiful, powerful uh, narrative or, or story is set inside a nightmare of a, a, a nightmare, nightmare framework where the Son of Man has come to judge the nations and separate the sheep from the goats. And then informs these good and faithful servants that they're going to be eternally rewarded and, they've, and they have, uh, by their good works, avoided eternal punishment. And... And one of my favorite part of the entire chapter is where they say, when did we see you hungry? When did we see you naked? But that wasn't what we were doing. We weren't doing this because you were hungry, you were naked. We were doing this because the naked were naked and the hungry were hungry, period. They were doing it with uh, uh, what the uh, Rhineland mystics, particularly uh, Meister Eckhart calls, um, their 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 action was without why. Without mm -hmm. why. If if you do if you if you help someone, and, and someone says to you, "Why'd you do that?" You did it because you did it. You did it because the hungry were hungry and the the naked were naked. Period. Mm -hmm. Once it's set inside a uh, e economic framework, it's ruined. It's ruined. Well, let me whether you're talking about a reward or a punishment, you've you've ruined the life of the without why, which is the intrinsic love is without why. Period. 
it, it doesn't get rewarded and it doesn't get punished it, in, in itself. I mean, in, in the real world, it does. Um, let me let me put, point out something that you well, can, may have can run I, into. Uh, in a little sure. bit, I'd like to have it. I'd like I'd like to have a chance to respond to some of the things you you said. Sure. Okay. Well, just to go back to the statement you made earlier, there are, there are no facts, just interpretations. Um, in, in, in and I that, said that's a saucy way to put it. Right. Right. Well, it, it's self contradictory in that uh, that that's coming across as a fact. Uh, that's like saying, well, there are no absolutes. Well, that's an absolute. Um, and as far as multiple traditions invalidating a single ultimate truth, I don't know that that is necessarily coherent. It could be that there is some single tradition. It could be, I don't, uh, could be some single tradition other than Christianity, which is an ultimate, which is sort of has a sort of ultimacy to it. I guess what I'm, what I'm trying to say is that for my own, my own position, uh, that I want what's fundamentally most important for me is that somehow love is at the center and that, that finally loves um, the call of love is finally heard and able to be responded to by everybody. And we are somehow all gathered together. I, I'm just proposing that that comes through Christ. If it comes through some other figure or some other way, I'll, I'll be okay with that. And, uh, and I'll just say, huh, I, well, I thought that was going to be through, I thought it was going to happen through Christ, but it's, it's happening in another way. And so I will, you know, I'll happily participate in that as long as, as it's a being, or we're being called together in love by a being that I can recognize as a being of love. And then when it comes to Matthew 25, uh, if, if you read, um, like David Bentley Hart, or other Christian universalists like myself, we, we will point out that, or, or uh, William Barclay, also the famous New Testament commentator, that that eternal torment and eternal punishment, the way that's translated into English, you, that's aeonian, is the word that gets translated eternal, and aeonian has lots of different connotations of meaning. And then the, the punishment word is colossus, which in ancient Greek literature had more of a connotation of correction as a, over opposed to the Greek word timoria, uh, which had to do with sort of uh, uh, like a solely retributive punishment. Uh, so I would agree that if, if the Matthew 25 ends with the idea that truly there will be some that are cast into some type of eternal non-ending torment last for, lasting forever and ever, that that would invalidate the love that's at the center of the Christian message. And in the Matthew 25 passage, the, the people that are being, there are people that are being thrown into jail and that are hungry and naked, or if you, if you naked, if you read that passage, I think critically, you can see that those are most likely the Jesus little flock, his family, his followers. And the warning is that's being given to the nations then is that by the way that you treat these, my followers, you're treating me. So that's the, that accounts for the confusion of the people that are saying, well, we never, we didn't, we didn't see you. We didn't know that you were doing, we didn't ever see you. And so what, what's being said in that passage is, well, in the sense that you did this to one of my little ones, you were doing this to me as well. So there's, I would, uh, those are just some of the thoughts that, that come up and, and the idea that, 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 the, that somehow this is, this is a transactional thing. You do, you do bad, you go to hell, you do good, you do, you do bad, you go to hell forever, you do good, you go to heaven forever. 
I think that's a that's a transactional misunderstanding of something that that invalidates the idea of grace, which grace means that we're all um, involved in love, and that love is love, and it moves in a certain direction, and it ultimately takes us along with us and purifies us of those things that are unworthy. So it's not it's not it's not transactional uh, in that sense. So those are just some uh, responses that I have. Do you think that love needs to be rewarded? It's not really rewarded. It just is. It's it's what we're in. It it is the it is the fabric of creation, and so when we when we move with love, we we thrive. When we move against it, um, then we're we're essentially just walking against the we're moving against the current. And the more that we move against that current, the more difficult and revelatory it becomes for us. So the absence of love is self-destructive. That, that the way in which I would make sense of Matthew twenty-five. Whether yeah. you whether you mean it as eons or you mean yeah. eternity well, the, in the Greek so sense. that yeah, so that evil would simply would would be a privative state of the of the good. It's not a privative state. It's it's an active force that uh, evil results from from one force. Uh, uh, Overcoming another, it's a, the, the the Platonic notion that it's a form of non-being is, um, I think, a mistake. I think that the the what 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 life is, what the universe is, is 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 a multiplicity of forces, and when forces um, are, are out of line, then disorder results, and 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 pain results, and and death results, and injustice yeah. results. But there's nothing primitive about about uh, good or evil. They're both forces. They're they're there's a, they're a play of forces, and the the uh, what we call evil lies in the disorder. So I I, I, yeah. I don't think I don't think the notion of primitive evil as primitive. Uh, it I, it's, I think it's a, an intellectual uh, escape hatch for the notion of creatio ex nihilo. The, the 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 notion of creatio ex nihilo is a, is a second century development of a debate with the Gnostics, and it's not found in the scriptures. It's not found in Greek philosophy. It's not found anywhere except before the second century uh, in the Christian era. Mm -hmm. In the original the, the original Hebrew story, there are elements which are as eternal as uh, God. And God just breathes life into them. And in Plato, even in Plato, there's a, a thing called the Quora, the, the primordial space in which the forms are inscribed. So there's, and before the second, nobody ever, nobody ever thought things were created out of nothing before, some, including Jesus, uh, before the second century, when this debate erupted, with, with the, basically with the Gnostics. So I don't think evil's privation, but that that's another point. Yeah, but, I think I, th I think I'm, we would I'm more interested in what you were saying about love being sort of self-validating, and the lack of love being self-destructive. That I think is where I I stand, and I think we probably both stand on the same ground there. Yeah, I would. And, I liked uh, that that passage in Acts 17 where Paul is speaking to a group of pagans, and he's saying, "We all live and move and have our being in God." And so 
the idea is that, and if I put that together with the idea that God is love, we are all living and moving and having our being in love. And so that love isn't just something that God does, something that it's something that God is, and that we are all in that together. So I could say, I am in love with you and with every and with everybody else. That is that is um, you know, kind of the water that we're swimming in, whether we know it or not. It's kind of like one, you know, like like if asking a fish what it thinks about water, it may not even realize the concept. We're 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 swimming around in this and to the extent that we that we go with it, then its 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 movements and its ultimate purposes, then then we become more enlivened in it. And the more that we go against it, we we finally um, run into more and more trouble until we finally uh, awaken and we start moving back in the in the good direction, kind of like the parable of the prodigal son. Mm. Uh, on that, we are fully agreed. Well, uh, as I, oh, go what, ahead. What 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 I wanted to uh, bring up, what I want to go back to, is this notion of love is without why. Mm-hmm. Mm. In the so, so if there's something else on your mind when you love someone, then I think you've diluted the love. Right, yeah, if it, if it becomes a transactional thing, yes. In the Middle Ages, the, the mystics got, the Rhineland mystics got in a certain amount of trouble <clears throat> with the church because they... Uh, not hard to do. Not hard to do, right. Yeah, see, that's that's <laughs> one of, another thing we're interested we converge on. Yeah, the, the notion of orthodoxy makes makes no sense to, to me when you're talking about matters of ultimate uh, concern. We we are all uh, working from some finite perspective and trying to, uh, as one one philosopher says, make ourselves worthy of the events that happen to us, which is, I think, a nice way to put it. Um. So they 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 posed the medieval mystics posed this uh, hypothesis, which was called the resignatio ad infernum, um, which was um, they posed this counter uh, uh, positional uh, hypothesis that if the love of God demanded that I go to hell, if it were God's will. In his, you know, the infinite mystery of God. If it were God's will that I go to hell, and and that were the demand of God's love, then I would accept eternal punishment for the love of God. And um, what they were trying to do was uh, break out of the notion that that love has a why, that love is anything other than itself. That it's, uh, that love has to be validated by some, by something, like an eternal being who is love, which would be another way to try to validate this. Thing. Love does not have to be validated. Love, love stands on its on its own, for itself, by itself. Um, and so they were willing to. So they 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 took this to it to its opposite. To, to, to they reduced it to absurdity. The notion of the notion of an eternal reward or punishment. They reduced it to absurdity by saying that 
they would accept Taoism if that were God's God's will. Yeah. That, the, what uh, I think that does is 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 break love free from any kind of eternal uh, framework or any kind any any larger framework because love is without why it stands on its own. And, well, and um, what well, I would just add that um, I mean, in my own from my own perspective, that the idea if I was ever dealing with a being that asked me to do something like that, um, um, I don't know, to go to hell forever on behalf of others or something like that, um, I would immediately you have to address that being and say, I don't know what you are, um, but I can't call you God. And because for me, um, God is a being of absolute and perfect love and whatever you are, you seem to me more to be like a demiurge or something like that, uh, certainly beneath uh, a being of, of absolute love. So I, I could not even rightfully address you as God. Yeah, that, that there are two, two ways to deal with that. One is uh, what you just said, which is what in the uh, philosophical tradition we call the intellectualist tradition, and that is that just doesn't make sense for God. Now, actually, those Meister Eckhart was was a Dominican in that tradition, and so it was posed. That's why I said it was a it's a counterfactual uh, proposal because what he understands God to be, God would not do that. However, there is what you call the voluntarist position, which is what the one you find in Luther, and Luther, when he in his debate with Erasmus, seems to say that. He seems to say the God we see portrayed in the New Testament, the God of Revelation, would not do that. But God, as God is in God's self, this infinitely incomprehensible being, far be it for me to say what God would do. So when, when you posit a being of the omnipotence and omniscience of God, uh, which is a hypothesis of uh, some something in, incomprehensible. If I comprehend it, it's not God, St. Augustine said. Then you, you, know, you, you run into things like this. I mean, there's nothing to say that this incomprehensible being wouldn't do that. Luther says. Yeah, if, if, if we, I mean, I think that has been one of the horrible things that has happened in theology is that you, 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 you posit a being that is beyond critique and understanding, and then you justify absolutely anything that this God could do because it's beyond our understanding. Where I, was, where I would take the position that, that God is revealed to us in Christ and that the character of Christ is the character of God and that Christ invites us to use the analogy of a perfectly loving parent. And so, you know, based upon those things, I would just have to say to this, uh, this being that is uh, appearing to me and asking me to do things that uh, are not in character, in the character of Christ or the character of a loving parent, I would just say, I'm, I'm sorry, uh, do whatever you will to me, uh, but you appear to me still to be a demiurge and not, uh, I can't uh, call you God. Yeah, it's the intellectualist position, yeah. Well, to move on just a little bit here, uh, that what I have been interested in is I was reading through your position, you 
are, you don't seem to me to be, you're, you're not adopting a sort of an atheism. It, it seems like I would call it sort of a, just short of an atheism where you are still haunted by the specter of God. And so it's, it's a, it's a kind of a, it's kind of a, of a haunted, uh, a haunted position. Is that fair? Yes, at that point, I'm using a, a trope from uh, Derrida, who um, speaks about that instead of an ontology, a hauntology. And so, in and in French, that's actually uh, 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 they're homonyms in French. Oh, okay, um, ontology, ontology <laughs> is, <laughs> is what Derrida is doing. So I'm using that that trope, and it's a good one. I I like it because it um, one for one thing, it it, it skirts the uh, dualist uh, division between the material and the immaterial, uh, which is uh, ultimately a Platonic dualism. But it's a, it's a dualism in, in introduced into philosophy at the very start by Greek philosophy, and it's it's not actually found in the New Testament. Uh, or in the Old Testament, it's not, or the Jewish scriptures, um, and so, but 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 there are we we don't want to, if we don't want to identify, if we, if we don't want to posit some realm of immaterial being, some kind of eternal immaterial being, uh, we don't want to dismiss the idea of um, the. The invisible, the the voices that uh, address us, the things that disturb us, the the memories that are uh, not lost, the hopes and expectations that uh, we don't uh, give up on. There, there is more to what is present than what is present. There is the, the memory, the the memory of the uh, of the past and the promise of the future. And and so to give that a, a kind of status, Derrida refers to it as a a, a, a specter, a kind of ghost, uh, meaning the sphere of hope and 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 promise, and the sphere of memory, which are non-present, non-actual, the the possible, the the, the status of the possible, uh, is the the the. The whole sphere of, of memory and promise, and what my view is that um, a, a strictly rationalist way of thinking about human existence um, tends to uh, dismiss that realm, and uh, a strictly uh, theological way of thinking about that realm tends to fetishize it or reify it or turn it into some sphere of being, so that there is some kind of eternal realm called heaven and it's ruled over by some eternal being called God. That I think is a reification of this sphere of promise and memory, the sphere of hope and expectation and the memory of uh, 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 an ancient beginning from a time out of mind. Um, and so I think the place where you can find these that realm, where it is not mistreated, is not the pure rationalism of philosophy and not the, the, the supernaturalism of theology, but in the realm of um, what I like to call 
it's not my word, but uh, it's a group of number of people uh, who've worked around this idea, the realm of the theopoetic, not the theological, as if uh, there were some some genuine uh, scientific or uh, other or, or or even supernatural knowledge, logos knowledge, scientia, ratio. But it is a form of poetics. It is it is a vision of life. So what I think is going on in the, in the multiplicity of religious traditions and. Christianity happens to be the one I found myself in, is a multiplicity of visions of life and uh, visions of hope and uh, memory. And I'm quite happy to organize that vision around the notion of love. Not everybody does. I mean, in the, in the Hebrew tradition, in the Jewish tradition, the, the, the word justice has uh, plays a kind of focal uh, point. Uh, in 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 Buddhism, it's not love or justice. They they think in other terms. So there's a multiplicity of ways of thinking about um, and organizing a vision of life, and they're not all the same. They're, they're they differ from each other. But well, uh, it those they they are for me theo uh, because they involve some notion of the divine. Poetic because they in, involve some notion of the creative imagination, envisioning life within limits that are unsurpassable for us. So that's the the more sober word for what we're, we're, I, I call hauntology or being haunted by God. The the more sober word is uh, theopoetics. So I, what I might observe is that your theopoetic God seems awfully present in its absence, and you might observe that my reified God seems awfully absent in its presence. So we're kind of on different um, uh, sides of that 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 spectrum. What, what do you mean when you say present? But my, the, the theopoetic God is more present than absent. Well, you're, you're in the the what you what you have talked about in your book is that you know this God, this super being, as you as you call God, um, seems to not be there when needed the most, and so okay. you know seems very very absent. Um, you I know, see. it's it's being okay. claimed to be it's being claimed to be present, whereas uh, in the way you're the way you're putting it. You're saying that there, you know, that this that this God is not is not an ontological reifiable being, yet um, it seems this haunting this haunting presence seems very vibrant, very real, in the in its disturbing you and it's calling you forward. Uh, so it's not yeah. a, it's not a it's not a specter that behaves itself. It's very it's a very troubling. Um, very real kind of feeling presence as I read your as I read your work. I see what you mean. Okay, yeah. Well, the, yeah. The presence of it is that we're we're dealing with an, a living tradition, so that the 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 figure, the figures of the New Testament uh, are alive for us. I mean, they're not they're not alive for other people, and they um, they're alive for us in the way that the figure of Athena was alive if you lived in fifth century Athens. Uh, 
these these figures have have they don't have truth and falsity in the representational sense, but they have vitality and they can go moribund. So some the the the, the Greek gods are just simply a, a dead tradition in terms of organizing a form of life. They're they're important in terms of uh, Western culture, and they have a they have an artistic uh, power when we go to a museum and see them, but they've lost their power to organize a form of life. So yeah, the presence the presence of this figuration of the key, of what is called the kingdom of God in the New Testament is still alive and well. It's being profoundly dis- distorted right now, and I don't by Christian nationalists, and I don't know how much longer it's going to last under under that kind of assault. But it is it is a, a, still a vital tradition, and that that's the sense in which it is present. It it's, it inspires. I mean, the word spirit, specter, they're not far from each other, right? So the 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 inspirational power of the figure of the kingdom of god uh, is still alive it hasn't it hasn't been destroyed it hasn't gone more abundant. that's the sense of which is present now the sense of which it's ab- absent is um well um i, I think one of the best uh, ways to explain that is w- this reign of gun violence that which we have in the united states mm-hmm. uh, which is just unchecked. Uh, the way that politicians, maybe in their, maybe they're being sincere, I don't believe they are, but maybe they're being sincere, uh, they will say uh, to the victims of this violence and their families, we will pray you are in our prayers. Now, everybody knows. Everybody knows. <laughs> that is going to do nothing. That, that is going to do nothing. If you want to do something about gun violence, do something. Be inspired by the figure of Jesus, but do something. Be inspired by the, the notion of justice, but do something. Be inspired by whatever it is that inspires you, but do something. So, so I don't think, so, so I think the notion of God is, is a focus imaginarius of uh, everything that we um, love and desire, and it's and it takes figure, concrete figure, in religious traditions like Christianity, where we have what is called an icon of God, an iconic figure in which our our dreams and hopes and passions and what we love is concretized. Because it has to be concretized in some way. It has to take has to take form and shape. And the power of these various traditions is their their power to do that, to embody that, to to give us uh, a an image, a, a, a concrete figure, a narrative, a story in which uh, we, which galvanizes us and and. Um, evokes a response from us. <clears throat> that that's that's what I'm talking about. But I don't want I don't think uh, we can reify those things and say, well there really is some being there that's going to actually change something. I mean what happened when Jesus announced his uh, message was he got killed and the Roman Empire continued its bloody ways. 
uh, is one of my favorite theologians is a man named James Cohn. He's a sort of the leading figure of the black liberation. Uh, mm -hmm. Out of uh, the oppressed. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And he said, uh, he said, look, if, God, if Jesus has uh, redeemed us and set us all free, somebody should tell the white people. And and that's exactly what I mean. There's a, the, I, I don't think that God is a being who does things like that. I think that God is a figure of what I like to call the apophatic imagination or imagination at work up against the limits um, in which we um, give concrete expression to um, our, our desire, our, our love, our hope. But I don't think he actually comes in there and does things for us. I think that's... Uh, I think that is a a, a reification, or it, it, and and I don't mean this in an insulting way or an invidious way. I think it is a a mythic or mythological construction. Now, I don't think there's anything wrong with mythic or mythological constructions. I think they are vitally important. I think that they they give us uh, conquer, they they figure configure image for us. Uh, our deepest desires. So that's the sense in which I'm not an atheist, because I, I think this figure of God is very important. It's also very dangerous. I mean, I, if you made a list of all the things and uh, names in the, in the name of which people got murdered and slaughtered, I think God would be up there at the top of the list, along with love and justice and freedom and all other lots of other things, which is why I think that we're always dealing with interpretations. Um, so I, I I am not an I am an atheist about the God of theism uh, because I think it's an ontologization or a reification of a hope or an aspiration. Uh, but I am um, a believer in uh, the the God of theopoetics, the figure of God, which, which is what Jacques Derrida would call the event going on in the name of God. Mm -hmm. Well, just uh, some thoughts that, that came to mind as you were, as you were speaking is that, um, that I like the, uh, in the ancient church, that's what, this is why I like the, the ancient early Greek universalist tradition and somebody like Gregory of Nyssa had, um, I think quite beautiful ideas about some type of eternal eternal realm, eternally expanding in God. He called that an epictasis, which is, I think, I think a beautiful non-static kind of image of an ever-expanding uh, journey in the idea of justice for, uh, for folks like, folks like that wasn't some kind of punitive idea is that justice is a matter of setting things right to, of setting them the way that they, they should be so that they, that they, that they thrive. And about the kingdom of God, uh, you mentioned that uh, that you think that Jesus failed to failed in his kingdom, that it was crushed, he was killed, and um, I, I, I take some heart in the idea that 
that Jesus was pretty clear that his kingdom was not of this world and that the kingdom of God is the in Greek is basileia, which implies a reign. So Jesus tells a parable where somebody goes away to get a kingdom and then comes back with the kingdom and then begins to reign. So really the kingdom of God is the reign of God. And if, if we read the Sermon on the Mount, that reign, uh, whenever we repent and receive that reign and we act in love of enemy, uh, we love those who persecute us. We, um, you know, we don't engage in violence. We don't uh, dehumanize other people. That, in fact, is the reign of God. We see that reign of God being present, and that, um, like Martin Luther King would say, that that his actions, uh, his nonviolent actions of resistance, would that he could do all the training in the world with people, but if there wasn't real actual love for the people they were protesting against, that that it had no effect. And exactly. so when we are praying, the kingdom is of this world. So when we are praying, Martin Luther King pray, is a good, yeah. Martin Luther so King is a good example of the kingdom. Exactly. Right. So when, yeah. So when we're praying for the kingdom of God to come on this earth, what we are really praying is that, um, that we will be manifesting the reign of God on earth as it is, as it is in heaven. And that we will be ambassadors of that in this nonviolent uh, love and will be witnesses in, in a sense you might call as even icons of that uh, living presences of that on the earth and that in itself is tran- transformational yeah I mean I, I, I think all that is true I just don't think that there are two worlds and that um, if God, if justice is defeated in this world it will reign in, in some other world I, mean, I just think that's that is fundamentally mythological, pre-modern yeah. conception of reality. Yeah. And I would say we're all in the same, like I said before, we're all in love. We're all in God. There are not two worlds. Well, I mean, you think that, um, well, then what does not, not of this world mean? Well, this, you know, this um, this realm, you know, there are different, you could have different ideas of of realms within a single cosmos, uh, within, uh, within the economy of God. So I would just, I would just think of it that way. I mean, I don't understand what that would be. I mean, it, my, my understanding, first of all, what Jesus was saying was that he was announcing the coming of the reign of God and that that wasn't somewhere in heaven up above. I mean, this is TN right now. Surviving, yeah, NT right. NT yeah. right. Yeah, he he wasn't talking about everybody's going to go to heaven. He was saying God was going to come down and establish the rule of of the, the reign of God on earth in in, in Galilee and in, in Judea in on earth, and that the the and that the powers and principalities of this world would be uh, defeated. That's what he he was saying, as I understand him. Yeah. So he didn't, well, he didn't have two words. He didn't think. Not of this world would would mean not not the powers and the principalities, the the worldly powers, the dark powers of darkness, which aren't, by the way, privations. They're very real beings that strive. Against right. Yeah. There were archons. God's real. Yeah. Archons um, and and powers. So, so yeah, yeah. So I think that the kingdom of God is realized every time people like Martin Luther King or the many 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 other uh, heroes of. Uh, faith uh, over the course of the centuries have actualized them. The, 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 the kingdom gets actualized in the, in the actions of, 
of, of real life people. It doesn't have to do with some spiritual realm. It doesn't have to do with um, some eternal realm where, where God and love and justice prevail. It's, it has to do with people like Martin Luther King who get killed for their troubles, uh, the way Jesus did. When, when Jesus was def- Jesus was 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 murdered, but what survived, what resurrected, was the poem, the Theo poem that that uh, we found in that we find now in the scriptures. So he was raised up into theopoetic space, as far as I'm concerned. The way when people are one of the best ways to to perpetuate something that you're opposed to is to is to martyr, make a martyr out of its spokesperson, and that's exactly what happened to Jesus. And then he took on a life of its own under the influence of Greek philosophy and neo Christian Neoplatonism, which separated him way off from uh, ancient the Judaism to which he belonged, and where there was no Platonic dualism between uh, time and eternity, there was no other other world outside uh, this one there was this world and god was going to reign in it so i think jesus i think jesus would have walked around the council of nicaea scratching his head head saying uh, asking his translator who would because he didn't speak greek who are these people talking about i I think jesus would recognize i think jesus would recognize the, the opening line of the, the, the Nicene Creed that God created the world. He had recognized part of it being suffered suffered under Pontius Pilate. The rest of it, rest of it would mystify him. I, I don't think he would. He wasn't a Christian. He never laid eyes on Paul. He never heard of Augustine. He never heard of the fathers of the Church of Gregory of Nyssa. He was a Jewish prophet announcing the coming of the God of Israel. Who was going to make straight the uh, ways of uh, justice and, and disperse the rule of the Romans and establish the rule of the God of Israel? Well, I think so, these are the. I think these are the. the you know, I'm, I'm aware of all of the, the sort of the demythologizing of of Jesus and all of these different um, all these different arguments. And what he would have, you know, like what he would have thought if he was at the Council of Nicaea and in these different things. Um, so, I, but I guess sort of at the end of the day, uh, so you're you're doing a theo, you're doing a theopoetics. Um, you're not advocating an atheism because of, of how you've how you've expressed it. I'm I'm expressing a Christian universalism, which is. A more concretized, um, a much more concretized expression of the Christian faith, and that wouldn't make that wouldn't make sense to you. We have some we have some resonance together in the things that we both disagree with, especially with regard to the idea of this uh, God of eternal torment that finally uh, puts in a transactional way, you know, puts people in hell uh, forever. Um, but I, but I think that what I appreciate about you is that uh, you're asking good, you're asking good questions, and you're provoking, uh, you're pr- provoking good thinking. And ultimately, uh, as as I read your work, there's a lot about. It's not a pessimist. It's not. It looks. It looks at the difficulties of the world squarely, but ultimately, it doesn't seem to be a fundamentally pessimistic approach. There's there's a lot that you write about hope. 
And so I wonder if we can I, maybe sort of wind up in you talking about That's exactly about right. Hope. I, I was I was about to say to you that there's a, a book. Uh, someone did a book surveying contemporary theological positions, and when she got, she got to me, she she called it a postmodernism of hope. That was exactly the figure she. Yeah, a postmodernism of hope. That'd be a good way of describing your position. Yeah, that that's exactly right. That's exactly what I think. Um, and it, the sense in which I'm not an atheist is that I, I do not want to give up on this word, on the power, on the evocative, uh, imaginative, theopoetic power of the idea of God. I think that it's, I mean, when you look at when you look at the history of philosophy, uh, you don't find people, philosophers, invoking something like the Sermon on the Mount. They don't come up with that. You know, they come up with theories of justice. But they don't come up with this uh, what I what I like to call the the sacred anarchy of the figure of Jesus in the New Testament this this um, constellation of reversals that the last will be first the outsiders will be in um, the uh, love is to be uh, hatred is to be met with love offense with forgiveness the philosophers don't talk like that they don't think like that. They, they, you know, they think in terms of the, the supreme value within philosophy is, is the notion of justice. Um, and so we need a discourse which is neither rationalistic nor supernaturalistic. Now, one place for that is, is, lit is poetry, is literature, or art. But, and I think of religion as a, as a specific kind of art. Now, it's not simply aesthetics. Um, it's um, concerned with the, with the depths of life, and so I call it a theopoetics. And that's a seat of hope, of expectation, promise. What I always like to say, the kingdom of God in the, in the New Testament is in the subjunctive. It is what the world would look like if what is going on in the name of God reigned what it would be like so it's it's a it's a it's a, it's a world of uh, a this a universe of promise of hope of expectation uh and it it it's, it's powerful it's a powerful set of narratives it's a powerful image it's a powerful vision which inspires us in a way that you won't get out of philosophy and if you go to theology well, it'll get supernaturalized well, and one the way of the to keep things, it safe is theopoetics. One of the things that I thought about you as I read your story, or there were little hints of your story throughout the throughout the book, and it seemed like you were raised in a a Catholic setting, which would have been um, fairly traditional in its ideas of heaven and hell, and that um, that you rejected that. And then you found this um, mythopoetic way in philosophy, of, of in, in in a way still having that tradition speak to you. Um, but I'm, I'm I was sort of wondering, you know, what might have what what your story might have been if you'd been raised in like a, a a form of Christianity that was more the line of like a Gregory of Nyssa or something like David Bentley Hart is talking about today, where this you had just been presented with a God of perfect love. He would never 
uh, abandon any of his children eternally, and that whatever correction that there would be, even in the come now or in the coming ages, would always be um, in love and, and towards the end of restoration. Um, it, I was just had that had that question come to yeah. mind. What are your thoughts about that? Yeah. Yeah, I, I actually the book that uh, I mentioned to you in our email, this called "What to Believe," which uh, just appeared uh, from Columbia University Press, has a very autobiographical uh, slant to it. And uh, <clears throat> I begin with uh, being born and raised. I was born in 1940, right? So I, I was born and raised in pre-Vatican II Catholicism, and mm-hmm. it was. Um, and particularly in, in the United States, that, that was a Catholicism that was marked by the by by Irish Catholicism, right? So uh, the Catholic, Roman Catholic Church in the United States was, was for the longest time in its beginnings and, and still shows plenty of signs of, of Irish Catholicism. So it was very traditional. You know, everything was in Latin. Uh, and I was, uh, I wasn't, I did not feel a bit alienated by that. I, you know, I, I uh, signed on, and I signed on literally because I entered a religious order uh, after I graduated from high school, and I spent four years uh, in, in a religious order. And it was there when, when I was in uh, college studying theology and, uh, and philosophy that I began to realize that what I really was interested in was philosophy. And that that, and I wanted to become a philosophy professor, and then that wasn't going to work in the religious order that I belonged to, and so I we we parted ways on friendly terms. I mean, I still in touch with those people, um, and I began the serious study of philosophy. So what what emancipated me from the um, world of pre-Vatican II Catholicism was philosophy. And I began to ask questions and think about things um, outside the sphere of influence of the priests and nuns that I uh, was taught by, and, and priests and nuns and brothers. Um, so the, 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 and, and at, at first, my first break was complete. I just thought that I really, that's, that really is just mythological. Um, that that whole world is just mythological, and I devoted myself quite seriously to philosophy. Um, but as I continued to do my philosophical work, I I kept coming back to the questions, and the concerns, and the issues that uh, I found as growing up in this profoundly religious world. Um, I may say too, by the way, that. Um, by the time I got to college, the Catholicism I was running into was very progressive. So the, the people who were teaching me were uh, people who were threw their hats in the air when Vatican II came around. And um, it opened up Catholicism in a way that it was. Were you, from, were you familiar with figures like Hansers von Balthasar? Sure. I mean, not then. Not, not then, but uh, of course, because he was, uh, he was. Well, well the, you know, I mean, they're figures that are associated with the Catholic ressourcement, the uh, exactly you know, the, east, yeah. the eastward I, turn. Yeah, I know, I know that, and I, I think that is Christian Neoplatonism. I don't think it is the kingdom of God in the New Testament. Uh, 
Yeah, I do. I know that. I know. I, I, when, in fact, when you said universalism, I thought of von Balthasar. It was the first thing I thought of. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, yeah, that's a more that's a more congenial version of certain things in Christianity. But it is it is far removed from the figure of Jesus in the New Testament. Jesus was not a Neoplatonist. I mean, he didn't <laughs> he didn't know anything about any of the stuff they were talking about. Yeah, well, I mean, there's still, you know, even if you take his, but if you take his parables about the lost sheep and the lost coin and the lost son, and some, I think, other things that he said, the idea um, of, of of a God who searches and finds the lost and who never fails is is there. Yeah, uh, I, but I, but I think that's a theopoetic image, right? I mean, you know, one person in whom I've come in contact with this quite directly because he's also a philosopher, is Jean-Luc Marion. Jean-Luc Marion was, of all the people in the Catholic Church, all the thinkers, theologians of the Catholic Church, the, the thing who was the one who was the most deeply influential in Jean-Luc Marion is Van Balthasar. Do, how, are you familiar with Marion at all? Have you uh, come across him? No, I've read, I've read Von Balthasar's work, um, uh, yeah, Dare We Hope. Too. I think Dare We Hope That All Are yeah. Saved. And in, and in that work, he, Van Balthasar says that it's infinitely improbable that all would not be saved. So it's as close to an outright uh, universal salvation um, as you, I think you can find in Catholic theology. That's, that's right. I, I agree. Yeah. And see, what's, what, what's making him cautious about the way he puts it is the Vatican. Right. <laughs> Which yeah. is... Which is crazy. I mean, you know, the notion that there would be somebody who would claim authority in these matters is laughable, right? Well, I think that's another where we have some where we have some agreement that 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 our thinking. As a matter of fact, my the church that I'm in, the Christian Church Disciples of Christ, has rejected creeds, has tests of fellowship, and encourages yeah. each person to the to their own best thinking. As a matter of fact, the the person who recommended my your work to me is a minister in the Christian Church Disciples of Christ who thought that that I might benefit from uh, reading your work. And one of the reasons I wanted to read that work is that I, I want to be I want to engage with other critical thinkers, and I don't um, I don't want to be limited by some uh, overarching magisterium that's telling me what I can and cannot think. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, I've had a number of students who are disciples, and I've spoken uh, at disciples' churches. And yeah, I, the disciples, because of their non-doctrinalism uh, and their what, what they call what you call theoproxies, you know, theology is theoproxies, um, is very uh, congenial to me. Yeah, uh, one of my favorite all-time students is a uh, uh, disciples uh, ordained disciples. Uh, Minister in a a uh, teaches in a graduate program right now in a disciples institution. The, the disciples are very, very, very congenial to my way of thinking about things. Yeah. Well, but, I, that's what yeah, I, I would say. The, I, I would say the, the main difference that I can I can get I, I can glean from this discussion is has to do with. Um, um, the notion that there, uh, some 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 notion of eter of an eternal sphere where love becomes 
un, unchallenged, un, uh, undefeated, and reigns. Um, and some, some, some world beyond this world, some life beyond death. You know, all that I think is 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 mythological. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, but it, and where we agree, it has to do with this notion of theoproxies that the name of God translates into action. It, it's organized around the notion of love. Uh, here, here's a thought that you might. Um, that's worth worth putting out there, and that is, I actually think that that in the classical notion of God, God's notion, God, God cannot love uh, in uh, a very serious sense, and that is because love, put, in love, you put yourself at risk. I, I actually think love and death are inseparable. I, I think that love is possible only in for mortals, for whom. Um, there is no greater uh, love than that you would put down your life for someone else. Uh, I, I think love involves a risk and an exposure that only a mortal can have. So that when you attribute love to some uh, supreme, transcendent reality that can't perish, some imperishable reality, then such a being cannot love. Because such being is imperishable. Such being can't risk anything. Lose well, anything. I've been I've been really influenced by the uh, theology of Jürgen Moltmann, in you know his theology of hope, and he even yeah. has a book entitled "The Crucified God," right? Which you yeah. know, which yeah. I think is an attempt to address that Suc- successfully. Do you think? Well, I, I obviously think that. Uh, that God is love, and so um, that I, I do think it is profound that uh, that in the Christian story, God comes in Christ and suffers death and goes to the very bottom of, in mythologically at least, Hades or however you want to take that, and then ascends and and rises and transforms all of creation, so that that God. Um, submits to the very suffering and death that God allows um, and that yeah. somehow we are all included in the death of Christ and that we're all included in the life of Christ and that I can find I can find echoes of that in the New Testament and that's been helpful for me as I've tried to work through that I, I don't expect it to be persuasive for you yeah. well I mean what's interesting I, I, I'm obviously I'm interested in the in the notion of the cross. I've written a book called Cross and Cosmos, and the and the theology of the cross and Luther, uh, and so I know I know this this tradition you're talking about. I mean, I think what's see what's interesting for me in in that is that God has to assume mortality in order to manifest His love. Because I think well, I think the, the idea that, I think yeah, they're the, inseparable. Well, the like Maximus Confessor had this idea that in the incarnation, that uh, God assumes humanity that uh, humanity might assume God. That that there is a that ultimately there would be a deification of creation itself. Theosis, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I know. <laughs> yeah, I know that. 
Um, but I think that's you know that's the, that's giving the mythological twist to things. You know that, that right, God yeah. becomes you, man in order the man that may become God is putting it, recasting it in mm-hmm. this. This is so I guess. Okay, so if what you're saying, let me say, if what you're saying is true, then I guess I would die with my idea that ultimately there is this, uh, there is this going to be eternal realm and a God of perfect love. And that's where I'm going. Uh, but at the point that I die, I actually don't go anywhere. True. Um, yeah, that's on, what I think. Yeah. On, because if, I think this, what, I think this all has to do with life, not death. Yeah, if 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 what I'm saying turns out to be true, then you would uh, you would awaken to some uh, reality um, yeah. of of a profoundly loving God, and uh, finally we we would all come to see these things together in the same in the same kind of way, or it may be some uh, completely other different kind of a reality that we both wake up to. I don't, we don't, I don't know. Um, But I am committed to the idea that, that, that we can have good uh, civil discourse with each other. And I heard somebody say one time, if you can only learn things from people that you absolutely agree with about everything, you're not going to learn very much in life. That's right. And, so I like the idea of um, of uh, getting to be in in you know in discourse with a um, with a, a, a philosopher uh, of such training as yourself, and so it's been um, it's been a privilege to to get to speak with you, and I, I really appreciate your time and the opportunity to I think engage on in these. I think these are important kinds of conversations that are good for people to have and, and good to think about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I appreciate the, the the as you say the tone of the of civility because one of the things that's driving this country into the dirt is the the lack of civility and mm-hmm. um, the the extremism. Uh, I think I, I I I'm tempted to say on both the left and the right, and that that's true. But I don't think that the, the left is the source of it. I think the, the 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 right is the source of the extremism, and it's Christian nationalists and fundamentalists, and so it's 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 the religious extremes that have got us into this, uh, and are accelerating the mess we're in. So it's extremely important for people who are interested in religion to be able to talk to each other um, and to people who are not interested in religion. Yeah, I was uh, thinking that it, I was thinking that that we could that the point of this this podcast episode was not for me to talk to somebody who would agree with, you know, my position, but the but to but to talk to somebody who's very well trained in philosophy and has a little different position but we could still have some resonance and we could still have a little different point of view, but we could have a nice civil, you know, conversation with each other. And, and, and at least, you know, I can come away from it feeling enriched by the interaction. As, as am I. Well, thank thank you very much. Well, John, I want to thank you very much uh, for your time. I just reached out to you with an email and uh, we hadn't met before and uh, you were kind to return my email and to and to come on the podcast, 
And um, I guess I'll just conclude one more time, let people know about your latest book that's come out. And uh, so if they want to follow up on that, they can. It's right right on the money for what we're talking about. It's called What to Believe with a Question Mark. And, and in that book, you said you're a little more um, telling your own oh, yeah. story. I start out as an altar boy. And the, I, the whole thing starts with my life as, a, as an altar boy in southwest Philadelphia, Catholic school with the nuns. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that would be, you know, I, I think that would be a little easier. I read of, you know, in search of radical theology. And I was thinking to myself, that's is going to be kind of difficult for somebody that doesn't have background. Um, in some of that's a good point. What, what to, that's a very good point. That you, what you were reading was a, is a university press book, so it's written for academics. Now, this book it actually is a university press book too, but it's not written for academics. It's written for um, a, uh, what we call what I call a literate but non-specialist audience. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's written in a very different, um, much more conversational. Uh, accessible, non-technical way. And that, that's the whole point of it. Okay. So if people want to, uh, if they don't have technical background and they want to just um, hear more about your story and in language they might be able to access a little easier, that'd be the, this would be the book to start with. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. All right, John. Thank well, thank you, very, thank you very much for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you, David. Bye. Thank you for joining us in this episode of Grace Saves All. You can help spread the word by sharing this podcast with others and by giving it a rating on iTunes. If you want to find out more about David or if you'd like to leave him a message, go to his website, davidartman.net. In the meantime, let's work together to help a hurting world know about the greatest news ever announced.